please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, of course. My correct name in that sense is Stephanie von Spreter. And you're in Norway, but you're not Norwegian. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got to Norway. Yes, I've been living in Norway for about 12 years now. So I came in 2008 to this country. And then I had worked in Germany before at the Berlin Biennial for Contemporary Art for a few years and before that at Documenta 11. But I actually studied in the UK beforehand and lived in many countries before that. So I was used to moving around. And then at the time, as with many actually who come to Norway, I was in a relationship with somebody who got a job in Norway. And then I quit my job and moved and started a little bit from scratch. Not completely because I had some contacts from before, but pretty much. Hmm. Yeah, I've moved a lot in my career. And that whole sort of changing geographical locations in some ways is really great and inspiring but in other ways is kind of detrimental, I've, I found, in as far as building my career, because I sort of have to start over from scratch in a new community. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I've been moving around a lot as a child. I decided to study, do both my bachelor and my master in the UK. I did a gap year in Italy between the bachelor and the master. So I was pretty much used to moving around a lot, but it's absolutely true that when you come to a new place, you have to establish new contacts. And actually, in 2008, Norway was pretty different from what it is now. It was a very quiet place, not a lot happening in the art scene, very closed off. There was no guides. I remember I tried to find out where are the exhibition openings and so on. And there was this Norwegian website called Unneskog. I don't know what the English translation is, but in the woods <laughs> could be a translation, which was a little bit like a blog where you could read when there was something going on. I didn't know a word of Norwegian. So it was very, very difficult to maneuver in the city. Also, I was not aware at all that here in Norway and in other Nordic countries, at least felt 90% of the people have a cabin, so they disappear on the weekend and are simply not in town. <laughs> so I was a little bit shocked that a country that is so close is so far away at the same time. So I really had to adapt and learn the language. and. Probably my double shock was as well that I had become a mother just moving to Norway and I didn't know what that would entail as nobody does, I think, <laughs> when you're becoming a parent and being in this country, not knowing the language, having no network, having just left your professional job and starting, starting anew, that was quite something actually. Do you feel that all that moving and changing and stuff sort of helped your career or did it was it did it create some barriers or anything? Yes and no. I think the advantage obviously is when you're an outsider in that sense, even though I'm European, so moving from one European 
to another European country, which of course is a big advantage. But I think it, it gives you a different perspective on things. And it also led me to initiate many things that weren't here, where I had, in a sense, like carte blanche. I initiated, for example, with two or originally three other people, a contemporary art guide, which used to be called UFO, with a little pun. <laughs> it's short for Utstillings Guide for Oslo, but it's now called Oslo Art Guide. So I initiated that with three others to make also aware how closed off it is. And probably when you're not coming from outside and now I'm inside, there's also many things that I don't notice anymore because I speak the language, I have my network and so on. But I think it is actually an advantage to do that. But at the same time, of course, as we all know, network or networking is really important when working in the art world and building it up and keeping it up. So luckily, I did have a little network from working with some Norwegians before I moved here. But that was more of a challenge, I would think. Now, okay, going back a minute, you talked about working at some biennials and, stu- and such. So the, something that fascinates me is, what is it that differentiates? Uh, so you did it as a curator, correct? No, I didn't. I was not the curator. Oh. But in the case of Documenta 11, <laughs> I was the curatorial assistant. But I worked really closely with the curators, which obviously in- influenced my curatorial work uh, later on. But when I worked for Documenta and the Biennials, I was not a curator. I was in the case of Document 11, as I said, a curatorial assistant, whereas at the Berlin Biennial, I had different roles, kind of like moved up the ladder from the third to the fourth to the fifth biennial. So I ended up as a project manager <laughs> in, the, in the fifth one. But in all cases, my, my positions were anchored in what was called the artistic office. So I was working closely with the curators on the one side and with the artists on the other side. And so one would be also a carer in that sense, in that curatorial sense, in caring a lot about the artists, actually, and being a mediator, being a friend as well, being like, in a sense, a trustworthy person you could share your thoughts with, but also somebody who would be hired to make things possible, basically. So so it had several sides to this position well the reason why i ask is because when i think about a biennial of any any of the biennials that you worked on i always think there's sort of a difference of something like a caliber a level a quality i'm not sure what the right word is but like somebody who is invited or participates in a biennial is somehow different than a Kunsthalle exhibition or a gallery exhibition or whatever else. So like, so what, what are the things that, that you felt like sort of differentiated the people that were working in biennials from people who don't get those opportunities? Well, for one thing, the curators that are invited to curate those exhibitions, they have a long experience behind them. They have been working on the international stage Mostly, I would say, of course, it depends a little bit what strategy of the biennial is. And I mean, there have been 
so many biennials popping up in the recent decades, and they actually are quite different as well. I mean, some are initiated by the cities, some are self-initiated, some are initiated by artists, actually. Some are a combination of things. Some want to market a city as a cultural city. Others want to have a more international outlook, so they're just catering for an international audience. Then there are specialized biennials that are just focusing on public space or architecture. So I think it's very different. But the biennials and the doc and documenta that I worked on has a very international outlook. So the curators that were invited do work internationally. I would say, at least in the recent decades, they try to have a non-Eurocentric perspective and have been inviting curators from different parts of the world. What maybe makes Documenta a little bit different is the time frame, And I think that's the biggest difference between a Kunsthalle or like a small art space and Documenta is that Documenta happens every five years. And the artistic director and curators, they are appointed, or at least the names are usually released on the last day of Documenta for the next edition. And then, of course, it depends on the obligations that the curator has. But in the case of Okwe and Vesor, the, the Documenta 11, where I worked on, he started, I think, three years before the opening of the exhibition. But his mindset was surely <laughs> much longer than that because when he got appointed five years before the opening, he, of course, had come with a proposal and a concept what this documenta should be, even though that changes along the way as well, which is natural. But So he had been engaging with documenta for at least six years before it actually opened. And then he moved to Kassel three years before the opening roughly, and he was pretty much there. And I moved there almost two years before the opening. So that's a very different time frame than you have from a Kunsthal. And I mean, when I worked as a curator myself at this nonprofit space here in Oslo as the artistic director on photography, where you have on average four to five exhibitions per year and many other things going on parallel to the seminars, talks, publications, and so on. The time frame that you have to curate an exhibition is actually pretty short. And that's also one of my critiques, I think, about how those spaces work. And that's one of the reasons why I resigned my position, is that I think in many cases you're just scratching the surface. And when you have this luxury, I would say also at Documenta, that you can really work long term on an exhibition, I think the result is absolutely visible. I agree. I wish we all had more time. I, unfortunately, these days, I feel like the with the internet and the speed of art fairs and the sheer volume of all these kinds of things that are going on in the world, like the expectations are that we go faster. Um, but what we as creative people, both curators and artists, really, really want is more time we we want the time but unfortunately the industry doesn't seem to want to give it to us i absolutely agree i mean that was the reason why apart from honestly speaking and i think i can speak on behalf of many working in those small and medium-sized institutions i was completely burnt out 
So I had to leave. And that was definitely one of the reasons why I embarked on this PhD now. I have four years to do my research and write my PhD. And and that is amazing to be able to really some dig in and dive into what artists are doing and following actually what is happening around the world and that influences your research as well obviously so I think that is amazing but it's I think you're absolutely right everything's supposed to go faster and a lot is connected to the funding that you get and reporting it's so much more about quantitative evaluation than qualitative evaluation Uh, so how many visitors do you have how many clicks are on your website how many publications how many exhibitions so so it's very much according to numbers. And I think that is definitely a challenge when you want to keep up the quality. So I think there's there's a lot of pressure there. I wish that the art world was more based in merit than things like, well, like you're in academia now and I'm also in academia. And, you know, the whole you know, check some boxes, get be published, have exhibitions, et cetera, et cetera, kind of stuff. Like it's exhausting when like we all chose to get into this industry because we love doing the thing we do, not doing all the reporting, writing all the funding grants, not, you know, do just check, checking all the governmental and, and administrative boxes. We want to be producing whatever that is you know my side would be in the studio you would be doing your curatorial practices but sadly the industry seems to be going the opposite direction and making us more administrators and business people and less of the creative which i find painful that's true actually and i think you're you're being taught from day one about this it's about delivering 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 and actually when here in Norway, I think you're in a pretty comfortable position when you are taking a PhD. In my case, it's four years long. Many others have three years, but I have 25% teaching. So that's why I have one more year, which I think is fantastic because I get experience on other levels. And I have, in that sense, more time to read parallel and research. And you're getting a salary for it, which you don't in many countries. So it really is a fantastic position. But I also can give another example. I'm part of a research group which is initiated by an artist duo, Bull Miletic, they're called. And they established a research project called Urban Ecologies here located in Oslo. And they invited architects, artists, and people from academia to work together. And we had several sessions and it was actually a really nice experience because it was like a, in a sense, a practical research group where initially it was not thought that there would be like an immediate outcome of things, but it would be about discussion, shaping the project yourself. They had an exhibition at this exhibition space called ROM or R-O-M. And those who were artists and architects, they physically <laughs> contributed to a project in the exhibition while the others are not. So we are rather working on like a long-term publication probably and seminars, but it's quite a different experience of having time to reflect on things, to discuss it together and then make something together. 
And that was a very new experience for me when working on the border between practice and also artistic practice and academia. It's very different. Like I was in academia 100% for a little, maybe about 12 or 13 years, you know, full-time professor. And I came out of that and I'm now a part-time professor and I am trying to be a practicing artist. And it the industry of the arts in academia is very different than the industry of the arts outside of academia. And then, of course, within that, there are many different subcategories of like, being a you know institutional or or nonprofit or commercial or all the different sort of little subcategories in that but like there's so much to it and unfortunately well like i feel this horrible imbalance where like the, the people that are in academia and i'm pointing by the finger at myself for this as well so this is no judging of other people we don't really know how the art world is working because we're in academia and there, it, it's a great luxury to be in academia. And there's a lot of time and, and space and, and creativity allowed in that industry that, you know, practicing working artists and curators and such don't have. And I feel like, so like we're the ones teaching the next generation, but we don't really know how it actually works. And it's a very unfortunate situation. Yeah, it's actually true. I mean, I'm I kind of sidestep my career now being in my 40s and deciding to embark on this PhD and I've been talking to many who only have been working in academia and when I talk about my experiences that there's a pretty cold wind out there. Many don't believe me that is that's the case and also the precariousness that you have that you're working from one short-term contract to the next one. And in academia here in Norway, at least, there's a huge discussion going on about temporary employees, when they should be granted this, the status of a permanent employee. And I have been working for 20 years in, in the field, and I've, I've never been a permanent employee. I was used to having like one-year contract, two-year contracts, four-year contracts, and the position where I resigned had actually two times a four-year contract, and I left after seven and a half years. So, but the, that was the longest I was in one place. So now that I have this also temporary position for four years, for me, it's pretty clear then, okay, I have to embark on something new and find something new. Of course, it has the very positive sides because you're not falling asleep in your position, I think. I think you're always looking out for something new, but it's a very, very different way of working. So that's one thing. And then the other thing about academia and the, the the practicing world find finding together i think there's a lot change a lot of change going on what i can witness which maybe has come with corona and digitalization things are taking place on zoom people can join conferences that they could never have before and same for me and i discovered some really amazing platforms and newsletters that provide me all this information where I can, where is which conference taking place and how can I register and so on. Facebook, of course, there's many things going on as well. And I think that has brought actually those two fields together. And I mean, my PhD is anchored in a research group called Worlding Northern Art. And that's exactly 
what our group aims to do apart from focusing on what is happening in the north especially in in the arctic and the circumpolar north but we have also people in the group that are working at the art academy that are both they are educated as art historians but they're teaching at the art academy and then we have curatorial practice integrated as a person who's a curator at a museum who's writing her phd on curatorial practice so i think things are moving into that direction where it's important to be of, aware that it's necessary to work together and then obviously the whole development about artistic research i know many artists who, who are actually either just finished their phd in artistic research or are currently doing a phd in artistic research and there's also a lot of communication going on there but I'm not so aware what's happening in countries outside of the Nordic countries regarding artistic research. Of course, I know it's been a long tradition in the Netherlands and then in the US and the UK. But here in the Nordic countries, artistic research becomes more and more prominent. When I was in school and then after even when I started teaching for a little while there, I never heard the term artistic research we had artistic practice we had we had uh, you know what do you do you sort of questions and stuff but the term like art research was something that came when i moved to the middle east and then to europe that i started seeing more prominent and it seems like that term of artistic research a curatorial research has become a more prominent word and it's not something that uh, sort of i was taught when i was in school so it, it to me it's like a a little bit of a clearer more defined word to describe the sort of it's sort of basically like what do we investigate kind of thing through our work or through our practice or whatever and uh, so that's a new vocabulary that i i have only heard in the past like decade Yeah, it's become institutionalized basically and in our research group we've been talking a lot about it also because I'm interested in one of the articles which I'm about to write or start writing next year hopefully if corona doesn't keep me from from it but there I'm interested in looking at the relationship between art and science and art and research in relation to the arctic so we've been discussing it a lot what actually is artistic research and research based art what are the differences so i mean artistic research really is the institutionalized term and of course there's many artists who are working research based and always have so that's that's the difference that we make the artists that are enrolled in a program they are working with artistic research whereas the other ones they are also working with research but it's not institutionalized in that sense. Yeah, okay. Now, you're the world worlding northern art, W O N A is is what it seems to be, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, give me a couple definitions within that though, cuz you use the term circumpolar cir circular circumpolar north. What exactly does that mean? Circumpolar north. Yes, that is quite literally what is happening around or geographically speaking in the subarctic surrounding the polar north 
So that includes sort of like the tops of Canada, tops of Russia, that like, so literally like the whole globe above the Arctic Circle line. Yes, exactly. Whereas because I'm located in Tromsø, or actually at the moment in Oslo, because I can't get up (laughs) because of Corona. So I haven't unfortunately been up since November, but usually 50% of my time in Tromsø. So the focus definitely is Norway, Greenland, Svalbard, which of course is part of Norway. So it's more the focus from our side on the Nordic countries, whereas actually one of my colleagues who's doing the PhD in curatorial practice, even though she's a curator at a museum in Tromsø, she's been on a research here in Anchorage now in Alaska. So there are, there is communication going on and there's actually a lot more transnational communication going on than what you probably think. One thing is obviously because indigenous culture and art is very important in the research group and generally speaking up there, including Sami culture and Sapmi is not only in Norway, but it spreads across nations. So also Finland and Sweden and Russia and the Inuit populations, they are spreading also towards Canada and the US. Uh, So not only Greenland, but of course, everyone needs to have a focus. (laughs) And my focus is Norway, Svalbard and Greenland because I see myself as uh, when situated here in Norway, the research material is here, then that is the most logical for me, not only to get access, but also to see it in a historical perspective, because also Norwegians were interested in Greenland. And there was a discussion, to put it mildly, between Denmark and Norway about the colonization of Greenland. And so many stories that are here that are connected to the Arctic. So I am not focusing on the Arctic regions in Russia, for example, or Canada or the US, although of course there are connections there. But I'm interested in the fact that like there are so many little sub niches. Like, you know, I've spoken to a guy in Uganda and I of course I lived in the Middle East. So like there are all these sort of subcategories. So like when it comes to northern art which like this is sort of extremes northern art like to me northern art is just european american so like this is like super northern um what is it that makes it so unique so is it the long history is it the is there a loss of some history like what's the characteristics that sort of differentiate this uh circumpolar north arts that's a very difficult question i think The research group sprang out more out of the urge to show that what is happening there. And so it's both about what springs out from there, but also the interests in that area is not located at the periphery. So that what is happening there is actually as important as what happens somewhere else, but it's not really known. And especially Sami art history i mean that's very young i would say and that there's a lot of research going on also about sami culture and language of course about rights indigenous rights i mean there's been transnational communication going on 
for decades, which one is not really aware of if one doesn't really delve into that research area. So I think there's a lot we can also learn from there. And of course, in the recent years, the Arctic again has become a focus area for geopolitical reasons, resource extraction, commercial interests, and so on. So of course, now there's, or in the last two decades, I would say there has been like a lot of focus on it as much as it was at the turn of the century, which I think is really like interesting as well. Like the, the colonial history that has been dug out <laughs> and not really looked at, that is really coming up again. And that derives from the period of imperial expansion. I know nothing about all of those topics, so I'm just going to trust you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Skipping back a second, though, because you had mentioned that you worked at a nonprofit, which I believe you're talking about photo gallery in Oslo, and you talked about burnout. I used to work at a nonprofit organization, and I made it about 10 years before I got, well, maybe less than that, but about approximately 10 years before I got burned out. And it's incredibly common, and not a lot of people talk about it. So, like, what was your experience with with the issue of burnout? Like, what what were some of the problems that caused for you? I'll tell you my stories, too. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to hear that. Everyone has an individual story, of course. But I think there's a red thread going through those small and medium-sized nonprofit institutions of course, the economic side is, plays a very large part of it because they're chronically underfunded, meaning they're chronically understaffed. So my position entailed not only being the artistic director, thus responsible for the programming and the content, but I was also the managing director at the same time. So my responsibility lay with curating exhibitions, writing press releases, doing lobby work, writing applica funding applications being a representative on different platforms, traveling around as invited guests to this and that seminar or event, personnel responsibility, financial responsibility. So it entailed in that sense the whole package. And it meant, of course, working at night, working on the weekends, and then trying to keep up the quality as well. And I always say that when you're working in that, it's a combination of exploitation and self-exploitation. Because when you're working in that field, that is for a certain reason, because you have the passion for it. So you really want to do something that is good and that you burn for <laughs> until you get burned out, basically. But from my experience, even though living in a Nordic country, which I, I am aware is different to other countries, but I think it's also, like in the elephant in the room, nobody dares to talk about is about being a parent. And so, so being a parent and juggling that is almost impossible. And so, because you have to be at home at a certain time, you can't dedicate every single weekend to a seminar or an exhibition opening plus a talk plus a book launch four times a week, it's impossible. And in order to catch up with that, in my case, I would do my work and then pick up the kids. Then I go back to the opening 
And then when I come home, then my partner would take care of taking the kids to bed, but I would then sit on, at my desk again and do the work that I didn't manage to do because I had representative tasks. So I think it's a combination of things. And then I said, I think the funding is also very problematic in many cases because you get short-term funding. The long-term funding that you have is usually also only for operational costs. So you have to fundraise for every single exhibition, every single art production and so on. At least if it if you want to have a more ambitious project, if you want to have an artist from outside of the country, then of course that entails traveling and transport and so on. And for that, in turn, again, you have to write funding applications. So it's like an endless circle, in a sense. I think that that leads you to to being burnt out. From what I understand, as an outsider, but having spoken to a number of people in Norway and Iceland and a couple other regions, Finland, the the funding is very good in comparison to much of the world. But yet it still has its own set of difficulties for sure. I mean, nothing's perfect. But you're saying that you can you can get operational funding, but you can't get project funding, which in my mind, that's the opposite of what like so I ran a nonprofit in the United States and they would only fund projects, but would not fund administrative or operational costs. So I could put on an event, but I couldn't pay a salary. So it was ridiculous. And I find the the whole system a bit broken. And I think part of what you brought up is the short-term nature of it, which I think is the, one of the big underlying things that a lot of funders, they think a, like a little bit of money is beneficial, but they don't understand that like from my perspective, when I ran it, I would loved it if I could have found like three funders that gave a little bit of money for a long period of time rather than a lot of money for a short period of time. But they think the opposite way. And that's a disconnect that I wish they could work out somehow. Hmm. Yeah, just to clarify, many spaces here know I have a long-term operational funding, even though they need to send in an application once per year to the Arts Council or some have been transferred to the Ministry of Culture recently to apply for the operational funding. And they have usually received it every year. But the case is that in December, the one year, you know how much money you get for the following year. So that makes it difficult to plan. And I know of some spaces who have had their funding reduced and I know of some spaces who have been kicked out of this program as well. Not many, but it happened. In theory, you do have long-term funding for the operational costs. But if you want to have more ambitious exhibitions, then you have to find extra funding. And that's possibly the challenge here. Or One of the critiques that I have is that there's very few places where you can actually apply for funding. There's very few foundations. So it's usually the Arts Council that you apply for. And then it's the artists who get directly the funding through scholarships. So it's like a one-year scholarship or two-year scholarship or five-year scholarship. So that's how the, the system 
works here. I have to say that when I was still at the space, that happened like in 2016, just something fantastic that the artist associations worked for. They managed to get like a, a funding pot or budget to pay artists a fee. And it was a trial period of two years and then it became established. So I think it was 10 spaces in the whole of Norway that were selected for this. My space was one of them. And that was really amazing because it was possible to finally pay the artists what they deserve, no matter what nationality they have. So I could use this money for the artist fee to invite local artists or invite an artist from Morocco, for example, and pay this artist a fee. But it's many institutions that actually are not part of the scheme. But that's, I think, a move in the right direction as well. Of course, the problem there is also that because there's little funding for production, artists start using their fee for the production of the artworks because the institutions don't have the funding to produce artworks. It's very sad that like money sort of makes the whole system go around. I mean, we we wish that it wasn't the the big driving force, but you know, you can't get the big exhibitions or put on the big exhibitions or publish the books or even keep the doors open without money. And you know, you all personally, from my perspective, you all are incredibly luxurious and privileged in the fact that you even have a government that gives as much support as it does in comparison to other countries, no country in particular, but a number of countries that I know. So you have that and that's amazing, but you still have to go out and find other ways to do it. And basically like the thing that becomes an, an annoyance for me <laughs> Because of course I have to do it too for this podcast. Got a grant to 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 expand this and do all this programming, and it, the amount of business stuff that we have to do, the amount of paperwork and reporting and and applications, applications that we write on a on a hope and a prayer. We're like, I'm going to put in a week's worth of work, forty hours, let's say, a bare minimum, putting together this big grant proposal hoping to get money no guarantee of money but maybe get money that is an exhausting emotional process that nobody really acknowledges how much effort we put in with the hope of something happening instead of the 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 fact that like if i do my work i get paid for it which is what happens in every other industry in the world except for the arts so i find that a bit exhausting yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I I put a word for it in Norwegian. I always said I am so I'm application tired. And that's what's ha what's been happening a lot of times. At the moment, I luckily don't have to write any applications unless I want to do a project on the side of my PhD, which I try to say no to as many times as possible. But that's that's the reality, definitely. I have a question for you in particular. So you're getting your PhD. I often wonder, like, what, I mean, are you planning on going to teaching? And if not, why get a PhD? As of this moment, but I never say no. My idea is to go back into practice and work in a position where I can combine 
research and working curatorially. So my current idea or plan is not to stay in academia, but actually to go back into practice and try to bring those two together because I think they still are on many levels disconnected. So ideally, this needs to be a state institution who have the duty to do research. The staff has the duty to do research, whereas many other institutions don't. And actually, I mean, things are changing there as well in terms of open access policies and so on. But if you have the status of an institution to be able to to do research, you have access to a lot of things that you usually don't, which is academic journals, academic publications, and so on, which is, of course, incredibly important or it's crucial. This is something that I experience now, which is an amazing luxury that being in Norway, being university at a university that is very well funded, I have access to almost any publication that I want. I just need to send a mail to the library and say, hey, listen, can you just give me access to the ebook or can you buy the book? Can you uh, provide me with this research material? My university especially also is working on fostering open access policy because it's true, many, both universities in non-Western countries, which are less well-funded, don't have access to many of those journals but also in the cultural field that is not academia. They don't have access to this material. And I think it's crucial to have this in the future, to be able to communicate with each other and yeah, find commonalities there and to work on common projects. My last teaching position, I was shocked to find out that there were lots of journal websites and places behind paywalls and all these kinds of things of all this amazing stuff that basically some corporation or company has decided that everybody should have to pay for. And of course, then they price it. They know that the only people that are going to be willing and able to pay for it are academic institutions. So they price it super high and so that the, so that it's sort of worth their while because they know like only 500 institutions in the world are going to be willing to pay for this thing. So they price it to be able to make it affordable for them to be able to continue as a company. But it makes it so that a lot of people cannot get access to it. I mean, my wife recently was finishing up her master's program. And as a student, she didn't have access to a lot of this stuff because her school didn't have access to the to all these different companies that expect us to pay for these things. However, me as an academic, my school had access to these these companies and journal organizations, and so I was able to get it for her. But I I don't understand why there's this pay barrier. Like, why is any academic research behind a paywall? I think that that just shouldn't happen, period. I totally agree. And I think it's very short-sighted as well, because, I mean, it's not that much in the humanities, but of course, it's very strong in the natural sciences. It's about how many people cite your work. And if it's behind a paywall, people can't, I mean, there's less chances that people cite your work. So the more you get it out in the world, the more people read it and the more people cite it. So I think it's only an advantage. But of course, 
it has always been a very like closed system and the move from analog to digital yeah is forced on them now <laughs> much more than it was before and of course it was also about being protectionists i think it also slows progress because i mean a lot of the research being done by people are things that could push whatever it is forward so whether it's a science or an art or whatever it can you know uh, be the next generation or the next movement of whatever but if it's behind a paywall well that movement has now suddenly been slowed dramatically to only being accessible by people within the academic structure and i i think that that's just horrible across the board i think you know, knowledge should be freely shared. And I, I'm just not a big fan of these whole corporations sort of sticking their nose in academic research. I think it's even more than that. I think it's actually dangerous because in this post-truth area that we live in with all those fake news, if we don't, if, I mean, politicians or the general audience don't have access to the research that is being done. And I mean, I think climate change and uh, that's like a prime example about having access to all those journals, articles that contain the data that humans are responsible for climate change. And that's been like shoved under the table for so long. And there's, I mean, there's a million other examples that you can take, but it's really important that the general audience, because the public, they are the ones that are moving along things also. Oh if they don't have access to this material, and the same actually applies for those who are trying to convince others <laughs> about their positions, yeah, if that's not true, but there's nobody who can counterprove it because there's no access to the material publicly. Well, I also say like, I've read a lot of journals and I'll, I think it's, partly our own fault because a lot of these kinds of like academic writings and stuff are so boring they are so dry they are so uninteresting to anybody who doesn't already have an interest in that topic like we as academics should try and figure out a way to do academic research that is engaging and interesting for people who might not already be aware of a topic instead of just sort of writing for or creating research based only for and by and about the people who are already interested. So it's kind of, we've created a little closed loop that makes it so that anybody who could be interested in it will never be interested in it because we write these horribly boring research papers. That's true. Actually, the PhD education here in Norway has become quite regulated and there's a range of mandatory courses that I need to do and take exams in it. If I don't fulfill 30 study points in that, I cannot deliver my, my thesis. And quite a large part of this is research dissemination, apart from, for example, research ethics, also mandatory. But research dissemination is a course that is mandatory where you have to do an exam. And that's exactly that. How can you disseminate your research in the public so they actually understand it? So that was something that our university in Tromsø is 
really focusing on from the PhD students and also, of course, <laughs> the other employees working there. But the PhD students have to undertake those classes. To me, that's something that's very sort of traditionally white tower academic thing where you like you write you create something that's about for by academics for academics and i think there's a disconnect there because i think a lot of the great research that's being done throughout academia in all the fields could be amazing for people outside of academia and useful and helpful and whatever other kinds of things. But there's the, the, you know, between the paywalls and then between the fact that we write them, like when we write them, we write them and then we submit them somewhere. And it's another academic who's reading it. And so we're being judged sort of, you know, very insularly by our by each other going like, oh, yes, that's a very well-rounded academic thing. But that's not engaging or interesting for anybody who's not an academic, which, in case we have all forgotten, is actually the majority of the people in the world. Like, because we only seem to think about ourselves. And I think that's to our great detriment. Maybe actually the social sciences have been moving fastest in that way. At least that's what I experienced at my university when undertaking research ethics or looking into research ethics, which is incredibly important. But also in the humanities, people who work working with language, for example, who are working together with their research subjects. And there I can see that there's a lot of change going on which is connected to the research ethics because it's not working on the people but it's working with the people and that is incredibly important up north when working with the Sami population where there's a lot of research being done on language, lost language, lost culture and communities that have been Norwegianized, one says, or who have undergone Norwegian Norwegification what you call it now, I don't remember in English. But there it's incredibly important to work together with the people to, to actually also, in some cases, co-develop the research. And that really benefits the communities. But in the arts, I think the way to go is really the collaboration between like the practicing field and academia and, and work together. Any advice from your experiences? I mean, you've had a wide range of experiences working with documentas, nonprofit organizations, now in in uh, you know the Nordic regions. So, any advice for the next generation about how to maybe approach the curatorial practices? Maybe quite a specific advice, which is from from my own perspective as a woman. As a mother, and I've been seeing it a lot everywhere uh, regarding artists that do have children, especially mothers who are stopping to make their work. And wherever I've seen it, I've been encouraging them to not do that, to keep pushing on. So that is my advice, actually, that one should keep going on, but also be in dialogue with others and try to find solutions together but don't drop it what's inside of you basically the creativity that you have inside of you so that's my advice especially to women artists i would say 
Okay, well, let's take it back a step because you brought up, you said it was the big elephant in the room that nobody talks about, which is that, you know, being a parent and working in the arts and how difficult that is. I'm not yet a parent. I look forward to being in the next year or two. And I'm looking forward to being like a stay at home dad and being very involved. But I'm sure there are lots of things that I have no idea what I'm about to get myself into. (laughs) But so like, what are some of the things that you think are not talked about that should be talked about more in relation to that? I think it should be talked about more about time and flexibility, what it means to travel, which of course has also other discussions one should take in about the carbon footprint that we are making when we're visiting all those biennials around the world, which I have been doing myself. But it's also one thing that is not talked about, like how do you combine your daily life with the arts when you are squeezed? And I mean, usually I would say apart from, I guess, the top few percent who are the collectors who can afford childcare 24-7, most people can't. So that's something that I would like to have or would have liked to talk to be talked about. I mean, now my kids are a little bit older, but when they were really small, it was like constant discussions. Can I do this? Can I not? Does it go? Does it influence the job of my partner? Because then he takes care, but then he can't do stuff that he was supposed to do. So I would really appreciate that. that, And that is like everywhere, whether that's regarding residencies, where it's for like single artists, usually or curators that you can go there, but you can also, like a three-month residency is really difficult to do because you can't take your kid out of school for such a short time period. It's a lot of organization involved, so it's more draining you out than benefiting you, I would say. How do you deal with weekends? Things need to happen on the weekends or evenings, and how can you actually try to be more flexible. Of course, one needs to take into account that there are many people who have a different life situation. For them, it's easier to do stuff after work. They can't do it during the work hours or they have different focus areas. So of course, one needs to find like a common way to do, but I think it needs to be talked about. And it's actually not at all. It's There's silence there all the time, I think, or most of the time. Well, I've had this conversation a number of times with a number of guests. We even did a panel discussion on sort of sexism in the arts, which ended up talking a lot about being a parent and being a, a, a woman and all this. But one of the things I ran into was a lot of women in the arts end up taking some time off to become parents. And in doing so, their CV ends up having a gap. And then they find it exponentially more difficult to sort of re-enter the industry because everybody looks at their CVs and they're like, hey, where have you been for five years, three years, whatever? So like, is this the kinds of stuff that aren't talked about? Like, was, What are some of the specific experiences you had that you wish more people maybe we're aware of or could maybe look look into trying to do something better about? I think it's important that you don't really separate your private and professional life. And 
that's what I've been doing myself. And this thing that you mentioned about the CV, it's the pressure that I put on myself. When I resigned from my position, I was recalibrating myself, I would say. And it took a year until I started my PhD. So in that sense, I have a gap on my CV, one could say, of a year. Not child-related, burnt-out-related, but it was something to come to terms with, like this hole on my CV. Like, is it important? Is it not? And I mean, when I applied for my position at the PhD, I was very open about it. I actually wrote something. The people that interviewed me, they called it a manifesto. And I wrote this manifesto and I actually gave this manifesto during my interview. And I mentioned it there I, that it is important to take it into account. I haven't done that in the past. I always shoved it under the carpet myself, but I will not do so anymore. So I, I learned my lesson and I hope that more people will do it because, yeah, it's part of your life. Same as your passion for, for art and culture. We in the arts industry put so much emphasis on those CVs. It's ridiculous. Like I, when, when I look at somebody else's website, let's say, or their CV and I look at it and I see like an exhibition every single year or, uh, you know, whatever they do sort of like consistently doing it every year. I'm like, wow, that's impressive. Like that, that there's a great admiration because like when I look at mine, like I do like fits and spurts, like I'll do like five exhibitions in a year and then not do something for maybe two or three years. And like, and then I even had a problem where I, I went to the Middle East and while I was in the Middle East, I, I just simply didn't have time because of the obligations of the job to do extra stuff. And so I have like a four year gap in my CV as far as exhibiting and this kind of stuff. And that's a huge thing that sort of weighs on me of like, I did it to help my career because I had a job that took a lot of time and energy and effort, but in the end it's going to hurt my long-term career because I don't have that good consistent CV. I just wish that we, we could base more choices on merit rather than again, things like CVs and other quantitative kind of, you know, demographics and whatever. I don't even know what the right word is. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And then, of course, it depends which people you meet. I mean, things are personal. And I think in many cases, I've been really lucky with the people that I met that have become my protégés, I would say. And I learned a lot from them. And they took me for what I was. And I mean, when I applied for my position at the nonprofit space, I was eight months pregnant. And they invited me for an interview anyway. I couldn't take the second round because I had my child by then. <laughs> and then they had to get somebody else. I was a little bit naive possibly as well, thinking that I could start this job with a newborn baby. But then this person resigned and they called me up and said, okay, we want to offer you this position. And so I guess it depends also on the people that you meet. Or now when I applied for this PhD and I and I presented my manifesto, those people that interviewed me, one of them has become my supervisor. They really, really appreciate the work that I do and, and believe in me. So then uh, I'd say it's also, it's about, in that sense, personal relationships. And of course, 
sometimes you meet people that do support you and other times, unfortunately, and that happens also many times, I know that, they rather block your path. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the relationships is what really makes the industry go around. I mean, it's, but, and it's, I find it really hard because I'm, I come from a family where it's very, my, my parents sort of separated their business from personal kind of stuff. And it, it's, and so it's very difficult for me to find that right balance because like I've met a lot of curators and I am super good friends with them, but we will never like, they'll never put it work my work in an exhibition because we're friends. And so it's not, it's very difficult to create that right balance of, friendly without sort of to the point of unprofessional like you're just including your friends and things and that's hard because I, I feel like i swing one of two ways either i'm too professional and people don't think i'm enjoyable to work with or a friendly person or i'm super friendly and they don't think i'm professional enough to work with so it's it's a very difficult line to bat to ride on that absolutely i agree and Maybe living here in Norway, I felt that in many cases I should, in fact, not do this. Norway is so small. Everyone knows each other. And when you're an outsider, you realize, okay, wow, they went to school together or they went to university together or they are cousins or sister-in-law. Don't ask me what they're related in some way. <laughs> and then when they need somebody to do the job or invite somebody, they just invite who they know and I for me that borders on corruption so I always was super careful regarding that but at the same time because one of my curatorial approaches is to to work with artists again and again even if I haven't worked with them for 10 years and then I work with them again but if end of uh, or if I don't I do follow their work I ask them to to put my email on their newsletters or I check on their websites now and then, but I'm always interested in how they are developing. And in many cases, actually friendships develop. And I have been including artists and in exhibitions that I have become friends with. And that's also because, because of those long-term professional relationships that we started to become friends. But there, there's a like fine line and sometimes it's difficult because so much works via network. And in fact, when I started working at Documenta 11, that was by my own initiative, was not based on a network at all. But once I was in the system, I established my network. So one of the co-curators of Documenta 11, Ute Metabawa, she was also the curator for the third Berlin Biennial and in fact, the first director of Office for Contemporary Art Norway. And that's how I had like a prior connection to Norway and she asked me to work for the biennial and she asked me to do a project for Office for Contemporary Art Norway so that was definitely based on a personal relationship of course also because she appreciated the work that I was doing and believed that I would be able to do it but that was also related to the network and so it's incredibly important to have that in the art world as well but sometimes I think it's a little bit narrow when you're just working with the people that are you are surrounded by yeah i think you should look a little bit further so when i worked at the nonprofit space for example i was and we had a new position opening i was 
completely consequent in making an open call and going through the interview rounds and taking a stance that everyone has a chance and not because you're already part of this network. Okay, you mentioned the newsletters of, of like people keeping in touch. I'm I'm very much against these kinds of things because like, I don't like sharing a lot. I have no problem. I will share no problem in this podcast, but I don't like the idea of like putting in writing some sort of sharing thing that basically can be quoted back to me in an email. <laughs> and so like, how, how does that work? Like, I, I, I don't like receiving these emails from people, but like, but I'm on a lot of email lists for some weird reason, even though I didn't ask to be on them, but like, I, I don't understand how they, are they still effective or are they just basically like a thing that these days people are using to just like touch base sort of like, just like, oh yeah, don't forget about me. That's about it. Or do you, are they actually useful? Like, do you like ever open up these email newsletters and go like, oh my gosh, this is amazing work. I've got to include this in an exhibition. Or is it more like a, oh yeah, I remember that person. I just gotta, you know, just keep them on my mind. <laughs> I don't think there's too many artists that are sending out newsletters actually. I think the one most most frequently is Thomas Hirschhorn I worked with because he puts my name on the newsletters of the institutions that he works with. And I really like that, actually, because I always get updated about what he's doing. But many, many don't. I mean, Thomas is incredibly organized, I would say, regarding that. But sometimes I just Google myself to, to see, okay, what are they doing? Or when I'm seeing an eFlux newsletter and I'm, I see this artist is included in this and that exhibition, then I go on the website of the museum and check out what the artist is doing. Sometimes the artists, I have one artist who he sends me WhatsApp messages <laughs> on what he's doing. Another artist, they're doing a Kickstarter project to make a publication. So they sent me that Kickstarter project and I, I supported it. So it's, it's quite varied, actually. Some I talk to, the ones that have become my friends, <laughs> basically. So I know what they're, what they're doing. Of course, that doesn't mean that I'm not looking at what other artists are doing. I think it's in incredibly interesting what's happening all over the place. It's more about trying to narrow it down because that's really hard. So I don't know. For example, when you're sus subscribed to Eflux and you're receiving like five emails per day, of course, you can't follow it up or on Facebook in different groups and so on. But I have come across like really, really interesting work where I've really then took the time to to really yeah, go on the websites and check it out, watching the films actually. And so I have been coming across really, really interesting work. And then also in academic research and when I'm when I'm re reading research articles in art history, of course, it's I mean, largely articles about specific artworks. And there's always very few illustrations in the journals. So whenever I read a research article, I actually Google the artworks and the artists to get a picture of what they are talking about. And that brings me further. Of course, that can be really time consuming, as everyone knows, once you're on the internet and then you get from this place to the next one and you have to stop at a certain point. 
Yeah. And also on the, the academic conferences, I can see more and more that also artists are included giving presentations. And that's also incredibly inspiring. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you also for inviting me. That was fantastic. Really interesting to have this conversation. All right. Stopping recording. I hope you are enjoying and learning from these conversations as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated as well. We'll even take a critical comment too. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com. Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.